announcements. Resources for today, obviously we're going to be reading scripture. So if you want to flip to the Revelation, we're going to be, on, uh, we're going to be starting in Revelation 1, which is the last book of the Bible. Um, you've got Bibles on your chairs. It's on page 861. Um, also, um, some, some books I read. Um, oh, man. I'm, I forgot to write one guy's name down. I'm going to have a quote from him in the sermon. But N.T. Wright, Derek, who's an Anglican, Derek Vreeland, who's a Pentecostal, Greg Boyd, who's an Anabaptist, and uh, the guy that, that um, I'm quoting today, I'm not sure, but I, I always enjoy a wide variety of uh, theological backgrounds when it comes to study in Scripture. And before we read Revelation, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you something. Today, for the next 15, 20 minutes or so, I'm going to remind you what your job is. You ever had that talk from, from a boss where they, they say something like ominous like that? I'm going to remind you what your job is. How to, I'm going to tell you today how you make a living, how you provide for yourself and for others, how you play a part in making the world a better place. And I'm going to start by using the words of John that he wrote in Revelation. So see if you can figure out what our job is, um, what we're wired to do, how we provide how we make the world a better place. Revelation, I'm going to do three different sections in Revelation. So we're going to start with Revelation 1, and I'm going to read verses 5 through 6. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. So now flip a few pages forward to Revelation chapter 5. And we're going to read verses 9 and 10. It's at the top of page 864. John writes, And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. And now Revelation 20. So fast forward a little further down, chapter 20, and I'm going to read just verse 6, which is at the very top of page 872. John writes, Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and he will reign with them for a thousand years. Anybody pick up on what our vocation is? Priests. You are ordained now. Priesthood. Uh, There are multiple words in scripture for this. N.T. Wright describes this as a covenant of vocation. He says what the Bible offers is a covenant of vocation. The vocation in question is that of being a genuine human being with genuinely human tasks to perform as part of the creator's purpose for his world. The main task of this vocation is image bearing, reflecting the creator's wise stewardship into the world and reflecting the praises of all creation back to its maker. Those who do so are the, quote, royal priesthood, the kingdom of priests, the people who are called to stand at the dangerous but exhilarating point where heaven and earth meet. So John tells us what our job is. And N.T. Wright kind of sums it up there. He gives us 
the means by which this happens, and that's the resurrection. That's what makes us being priests or image bearers possible. The fact that Jesus died and rose again. The death and resurrection of Jesus was not simply rescuing us from hell. Maybe we've heard that, but it's so much bigger and broader than that. Uh, It's more than rescuing us from hell so we can go to heaven one day. What the death and resurrection did was reunite heaven and earth. It's bringing heaven and earth together, and the two are now becoming one. And our job, our calling, our vocation, our priesthood is to participate in those two meeting together. And the more people that participate, the faster and more heaven comes to earth. And that is our calling. That is what our job is. You, your paycheck, and, and I mean, there's so many cool careers in here. Like, I'm, that's what blows me away about living here is everybody in here has got a lot. I'm like genuinely fascinated by what you do. But our career, doesn't matter who fills out your paycheck. Our career is what John says, is what N.T. Wright summed up, is what Christ calls us to do, is to be image bearers and to communicate that and to live and to reflect his love and his truth into the world. So there is a problem, though. Like, there are, there are um, happenings and circumstances that slow the pouring of heaven into earth, that, uh, that inhibit our understanding uh, of who Jesus is or our responsiveness to this calling. Um, I am not the guy that walks down the street and just starts grabbing people and announcing who Jesus is and how much he loves them. And let me explain the gospel to you. I've done that before. Very, very rarely have I felt, and it's either a combination, I haven't felt the spirit leading me to do that, or I'm just a coward. It's, I'm sure it's a, a little of both. Um, but I'm not that guy. But we are called to live that out in strategic and contextual ways. But there are problems that inhibit it from happening. Some might just simply label the problem as sin. Some might say, uh, you know, immorality. That's the problem. That's what slows heaven from coming to earth. It's because those people like the finger point in our culture. Those people are saying this or doing that, and that's why. There's blame, and there's shame, and there's words like sin and immorality being thrown around, and that's the problem. Those, but those are merely effects of the cause, of the root issue. And we could dive into Jewish history, and we could do a full exploration of the Old Testament and human history. But for the sake of brevity, we're going to skip forward to the New Testament, and we're going to dive into one of the most misunderstood and misquoted sections of Scripture, which is the book of Romans. Uh, it won't be our last... So I knew my mic might die, so back up. Hello, hello. All right. Let's continue. Um, We're going to look at Romans chapter 1. This is a letter written from Paul to the church in Rome, and it's filled, I mean filled, with brief, deep, contextual references to Jewish history. I I actually did a paper on Romans 1 and 2 a year ago, and I remember just writing for a while, like, I have no idea what he's saying here, because it's so filled with deep historical context and I'm not a first century Jewish man I don't know it's and and, uh, I don't know if this is true or not but I've read the whole New Testament I would venture to say the the most difficult context of the New Testament is Romans 1 through 4 it is a beast and and we're not going to do it justice today but we're just going to read seven verses of it we're going to take it easy we're not going to go through 
four chapters, but seven verses in Romans 1, and we're going to read 18 through 25. When people read Romans, they have a tendency to suppose that Paul focuses most of his letter on sin. That's not true. He mentioned sin, but he mentioned sin as the effect of something else. And that's what we're going to look at in Romans 1. And I'm going to read Romans 1, 18 through 25 in three sections. We're going to break it up into three. So number one, here's the first section. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. I'm not going to break down every sentence in there, but the first one's pretty um, attention-getting. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. That's, whew, that's blunt. Okay, what's Paul talking about here? Um, diving right into to wrath. Um, from a 21st century westernized perspective, it's hard to understand what Paul's talking about here. We think wrath and we think punishment. And we th- when we think of punishment, and particularly in American culture, we think judicial. This is why, for example, uh, we, and I, I say the proverbial we, we don't all like this. We like prisons in the U.S., don't we? We have the highest rate of incarceration in the entire world. Judicial punishment is something we are used to, and some quite a few people um, think is what helps keep the world in order. So when we read stuff like the wrath, we think in judicial wrath, judicial punishment. That is not what Paul's talking about. He's a first century Jew. He thinks about it in a completely different way. So I did a whole sermon on this about a month ago for Lent. Um, I'm just going to quote. I just wrote a few things down, and with a little assist here from Greg Boyd, I'm going to present the alternative perspective, the one that I think is more historically accurate. Due to historically inaccurate and harmful viewpoints of an angry and wrathful God, it should be understood, although passages in Scripture seem to indicate God's anger and wrath being poured out, it is important Christians understand all Scripture through the cruciform lens. God's judgment and wrath are simply him releasing a person to their desire of leaving his kingdom, which allows other agents... Satan, who are bent on destruction to do what they want to do to us. This is what's called divine abandonment, and it's a natural consequence of choosing to dismiss Christ. God simply honors a person's choice of leaving him or her behind. So let me give you an example. I get a lot of speeding tickets. I've talked about this before. Montgomery County has exacted a form of wrath on me over the last seven years that's hard to even describe. I can't tell you how many $40 tickets I've had from speed cameras. And I've got a speed camera right outside my neighborhood. I know it's there. Still get tickets. It's just there. It just continually pounds me with $40 tickets. I drive by it at 12. I know that, you know what it is? It's if you go over 12 over, I know this because I've experienced it so many times. If you go 12 miles an hour or over the speed limit, you get a $40 ticket in the mail a couple weeks later. This is a form and an example of judicial punishment. I speed and I receive a monetary wrath from Montgomery County, a punishment. That is judicial. The cause and effect are not related to each other whatsoever. Speeding, I got to pay money for that. However, if I'm speeding and I lose control of my car and I hit a tree and I suffer some injuries, that is what Paul is talking about. That is organic 
punishment. That is, the speeding caused the wreck. So that is when Paul's talking about wrath, he's talking about stuff, um, natural, organic consequences to living outside of God's will. The cause and the effect are related. The crash is entirely and organically related to my choice to drive dangerously. God is organic. So anytime you see in the New Testament punishment, wrath, judgment, you've got to think not in the American westernized 21st century way. We have to think like a first century Jewish person in the historical context of being not on top of culture, but actually like exiles and aliens and, and uh, oversaw by a, um, an, un, an unjust government. God is organic. It's important we understand that. As we move forward into section 2 of Romans 1, verses 18 through 25. So here we go, section 2. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. So the second section is entirely about worshiping things other than God. The biblical word for this is idolatry, and it's important to note that improper worship is mentioned. Sin is not until the third section. So it's improper worship Therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator, who is forever praised. Amen. So the effect of idolatry is sin. Sin is not the root of the problem that the cross and the resurrection addresses. Idolatry is the root. Sin is the tree growing out of the ground. It's what we see Sin is the effect of being, sin being the effect of idolatry means giving your allegiance and love to anything other than God. It doesn't have to be a bad thing. It just has to be something you love more than Christ. In fact, I think a lot of the times it's not anything that's inherently evil. It's just something we pick over God, over Christ that catches our attention. Idolatry, unfortunately, is what prevents us from living out our vocation, our priesthood, our calling. It's what the problem is. It's what slows heaven from coming into earth. And the natural organic, it's the natural organic consequence. Um, The natural organic consequence of this is that the world around us becomes distorted and broken because we are no longer living as image bearers of Christ. We are reflecting something else, a love and a concern and a care for something other than Christ. And the solution of that to that problem is not for us to be punished, even though that may have been what we've been told, Um, in churches we've grown up in. That's not the solution. What the solution is, is that we are no longer enslaved to idolatry. That's what the cross and the resurrection broke. And now we are in the process of being restored and bonded again to God. Um, This is why, one. I think this is one reason why the historical church decided that Easter was not just one Sunday. It was actually a 50-day season called Eastertide. I think God knows we have a tendency to take a glance at the cross and the resurrection and then kind of go, about, go on with our, our lives. But Eastertide forces us to sit and to stare and to be amazed and to really consider what the cross and the resurrection actually means to us and means to the world. It is what we are meant to worship. That is Jesus at his highest point 
on the cross. And that's what it means to view scripture through a cruciform lens. Um, Jesus needs to be continually worshiped by us. And when we do that, it's reflected in the world. And when this happens, heaven meets earth, which means we have one choice to worship, and that's Jesus Christ. And therein, since Jesus is the focal point of our worship, the, the biggest target that Satan has is Jesus. He doesn't, get us, he doesn't need us to hate Christ or um, completely reject him. He just needs us to worship something more than Jesus. That's all he needs us to do. He just needs us to shift the gaze of our hearts and minds just a bit, and he wins. So then we got to think about what do we worship in our culture, in the DMV, in our personal, li- in our personal lives. And um, I, I don't know if this is true or not, but I think a lot of the times this is hidden to us. I think this is a, uh, a blind spot. All right, this is the, this is the uh, hey, you're... I can't think of another analogy. Let's just say that's appropriate. Let's just say it's a blind spot that we can't sense, we can't see. No one's pointing it out to us. Um, We just, and maybe they don't even see it, but it's something we worship other than Christ. A few examples for maybe us to consider, um, as I think these might be tempting for us to worship. I think the two most popular religions in the U.S. right now are the political left and the political right. Those are the two most prevailing ideologies. And everybody's kind of like run into one camp or the other, particularly over the last two years. Uh, Christians, of all people, are being swept up into these streams of thinking, into these boxes. Um, Careers are worshipped. I mean, we are in the land of, we're all highly educated. Uh, Most of us are. We we all have jobs. A A lot of times we are working our way up a career path. And we have this idol in our minds of making a difference, of seeking affirmation and identity through our work. It's out of control. I do that too. Family. And I got to shoot straight with those of us in here that, that have family. When family is in town and makes a request or, uh, or, or we are requested to come visit out of town, it seems as though family suddenly takes the throne away from Jesus. And I'm not saying we shouldn't spend time with family. We should. We should love our family well. But I think sometimes family has more influence over us than Jesus and our calling and our vocation and our priesthood. And that's a problem. And that's about as personal as I want to get in a public setting. But it is something we really need to dwell on in regards to the cross and the resurrection. Of it, You probably don't think of yourselves as priests. And I'm a pastor who does not think of himself as a pastor. It's just not... It's just not a comfortable title or role or thought. It never has been, but it is our calling. It is what God has called us to do, and it's what the resurrection leads us to, to be image bearers of Christ. So we actually have to take moments and think, what am I worshiping other than God? And I did this about, and I didn't know I was doing this. I just started writing down some thoughts about 10 days ago. Um, they're not happy thoughts. I was writing them down. On my, I, I, have a, I need to write. It's how I process. So I was just writing down very blunt um, thoughts that were coming to mind over the past month or so. And I wrote them down, and then I, I, I kind of reread them throughout the week. And every time I read them, I'm like, man, I have a major problem with arrogance. Like it, it, Very arrogant things that I wrote down. Um, pride. And I'm like, you know, you talk about conviction. And it's a... It is a blind spot for me, um, and thankfully I have a wife that reminds me 
she's very discerning. She can see the see the pride and the arrogance and the. You know, we all have those weak spots, but are we willing to actually sit and process and allow like reveal what we're thinking so that God might shine some light in what we're idolizing, what we're worshiping, other than Him? Because I know what I worship. I I worship being right. All right. I just want everybody to shut up and follow. If you want to know what my instinct is, it's not empathetic. It's not sensitive. It's not nurturing. I just want you to do what I tell you to do. Like that. Does anybody else struggle with that? I told you it was arrogant. Like that's what goes through my mind a lot of the time. Even though at least 50% of the time I'm not correct. I'm not right in my assumption or what I think someone should do. I'm not the Holy Spirit. I'm not God. And he's continually breaking me of that idol. Um, and to close, uh, Brian Stone wrote a really great book. He, I like this quote. Part of what makes the call to Christian conversion strike us as so radical and invasive today is the level to which we have become acclimated to our ongoing conversion and formation by a staggering range of powers that contradict Christian faith and community and serve ends other than the peace of God's reign. That word invasive, that's what it feels like to have an idol identified. It's painful. It hurts. It'll cause you to be defensive, to push back, to you know, get angry. Um, whatever it is that carries more influence than our true vocation, that of priests and image bearers, it doesn't need to die. It just needs to be put back on the right shelf. Our right, N.T. Wright says, they stop being demons when they stop being gods. And that's just a great way of putting it. And as, as I mentioned earlier, um, I do hope you can join us May 5th before I close in prayer because uh, Carrie has been an image bearer for the last six years at Restore, and we've got a really momentous occasion coming up with that ordination, um, at May 5th, 7.30 p.m. Um, I do hope this is something um, that you will consider for you, like what you're calling, what your vocation is, what God, how is God calling you to reflect his light and his love into the world. Let's pray. God, thank you for your story.